Well, turn your Bibles to Luke's Gospel, to chapter 1, verse 5. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. Hear now God's Word. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, our prayers that we would look into the gospel of Christ, which Luke records, that you would give to us a sight of Christ that we might know Christ and love Christ all the more. We ask, Holy Spirit, that the word of Christ would rule and reign over us, quenching our thirst and filling our hunger. May we come now and feed upon the mouth of our God. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. At the very outset of Luke's Gospel, we're told that he has taken himself to task on a very important research project that he has explored and examined, that he has investigated and interviewed, that he has followed all things closely. You know, the ancient world had many notable historians. Suetonius was one of them, a Roman historian who wrote on the Twelve Caesars. There was also Tacitus, whose history of the Roman Empire spanned a large majority of the time of the New Testament. Another well-known historian was Josephus, who sought to expound Jewish history with its laws and its customs. Now, these historians are viewed as credible sources as their work has been largely proven to be so. But no historian of the ancient world has been subjected to as much scrutiny as Luke. There's a story of a British archaeologist in the earlier part of the 20th century by the name of Sir William Ramsey. And he was an atheist who set out to debunk the truth claims of the Gospels by disproving the historical reliability of Luke. And so he decided to trace the alleged footsteps of Paul throughout the book of Acts, examining Luke's record with what was unearthed in all the places that Paul had journeyed. Well, what did he come to find? That which he couldn't deny. He admitted that apart from divine inspiration, apart from divine assistance, Luke was the most accurate historian of the ancient world. But in his pursuit to find contradictions in Luke's account, by God's grace, he found a Savior. He was converted to the faith and he became one of the most renowned biblical archaeologists of the modern era. Well, Luke tells us in chapter 1, verse 3, 
that he has followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account. To write an orderly account of the things that have been accomplished or fulfilled. Now, where where does one begin? At what point or upon which event should the narrative start? Notice that Luke doesn't begin with the birth of Jesus. Nor does he begin with the announcement of his birth to his mother Mary. Luke doesn't even begin with the appearance of John the Baptist and the commencement of his public ministry. Rather, he begins with two ordinary, everyday believers. A husband and a wife. By the name of Zechariah and Elizabeth. You might call them Old Testament believers who had been waiting for the promised Messiah to come. But even before we begin with this couple, I want you to notice firstly that there has been a period of silence in between the Old Testament and the New. Now if you're taking notes, I call this a period of divine silence. And divine because right at the beginning of Luke chapter 1, verse 5, 400 years have passed since God has spoken through a prophet. The last word that God had uttered was through the prophet Malachi. And then 400 years of silence. You see, all throughout the Old Testament, God had spoken to His people through His mouthpieces. If you were here this past Thursday, we heard the word in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, through Pastor MJ. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But all was quiet. No prophet. No word. Not just for a year. Or for ten years. But for 400 years. Now think about the longevity of such an amount of time. It's not that just a lifetime went by without a word, but for generations and generations, God did not speak. It was a period characterized by spiritual darkness. It was a time in which the Jewish people had sunk deeper and deeper into apostasy. The nation of Israel had abandoned their trust in their God. The way of salvation was no longer by faith in the righteousness of God, but by one's own righteousness, a self-righteousness consisting of empty rituals and hollow customs. Paul, in describing this sad condition of his fellow people, he said this, for not knowing about the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to the righteousness of God. And in the face of such hypocrisy, God had remained silent. He had not communicated with His people. He had not sent to them a prophet. He had not given to them a revelation. He had not provided for them a sign or a miracle. It was a period of divine silence. But what did those few remaining Israelites, those few faithful believers Well, what did they have? They had His promise. Listen to the last word that God gave to His remnant people in Malachi. The last book in the Old Testament. God said to Malachi in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, 
But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. That there would be a coming sunrise that they needed to look forward to. But right before the morning comes, they needed to endure through the long, dark night. Well, when Luke begins his narrative, such is the case as he begins in chapter 1, verse 5. Notice with me in verse 5, he begins, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Notice Luke begins in such a way, not only for the sake of historical context and accuracy, but to tell us that these were days of trial, that these were days of darkness for the people of God. Herod, otherwise known as Herod the Great, he was the king of Judea, but he himself was not a Jew. He was an Idumean. He was not an Israelite. He was an Edomite. And he was appointed by the Roman authorities to serve as a local king, to serve as a puppet king over the Jews. And he was known for his massive building projects throughout Judea, one of which was to expand the area of the Temple Mount in which parts of it are still standing today called the Western Wall. But more than building up edifices and walls, he was known for his destruction. He was cruel. He was vicious. And so paranoid of his power and authority that anyone who seemed to be a threat to him was killed immediately, including many of his own family members. And we know later in the Gospel accounts that he was so insecure of a coming king that he sent out an order that all the baby boys in and around Bethlehem, two years old and under, be killed. Remember that? He didn't want to lose his position. He didn't want to give up his royal comforts. He didn't want to surrender his lifestyle, even if it meant murdering all the little baby boys. You know, what I am taken aback by is not the fact that the ancient historians described Herod as a violent terror, but that the spirit of Herod reigns in our current day, not just in a few people, but in an an entire society where men and women will do anything to hold on to their comforts and to keep their lifestyle, even if it means killing the unborn. We live in some dark days, do we not? But God is not silent. He has spoken. He has spoken through His Son. And as God's faithful people, we too, we wait for the sunrise to dawn. We wait for the return of our blessed hope, our Savior, and our King. But as the people of God today, so there was great difficulty for the people of God in between the two testaments, the old And the new, for 400 years, the people of Israel lived in the dark as there was no divine communication, only silence. And you can just imagine that the people were beginning to think, has God forgotten us? Has the Lord God in His divine omnipotence laid aside His divine omniscience so as to suddenly become forgetful? Has He forgotten about us? Has his memory lapsed? Is he drawing a blank? Has he dismissed his promises to us? 
I mean, there has been no word. There has been no revelation. He has not spoken to us by His prophets. We can safely assume that this was their thinking because that kind of thinking would have been our thinking. And the issue here, brothers and sisters, is not really the forgetfulness of God, but the forgetfulness of His people. You see, it is our habit to live for us blessing to blessing, to live from one blessing to the next. And as soon as the memory of our last blessing fades, we begin to question God and we begin to question His promises and our love and our faith begins to weaken and it begins to wane. God doesn't forget. You see, we forget. But God doesn't forget. And we forget that He is faithful and true. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 6, verse 13, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since He had no one greater by whom to swear, He swore by Himself. You understand that verse? To say it another way, when God makes a promise, He looks around to see what oath He can make to undergird that promise, to give greater surety to that promise. And when he looks around, he finds that there is nothing more valuable, nothing more greater, nothing God esteems more than himself. And so he swears by himself. The guarantee of his promise is backed by himself. And we often forget that. Our memory fails us because we naturally tend to think God to be more like us. Would we be like David in Psalm 103? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. In other words, don't forget that God, that God never forgets. That God never forgets, which is to say, and here's the second thing that I want us to see here, that He remembers. That divine silence here was followed by divine Remembrance. And again, when we read in our Bibles that God remembered, it's not to say that the infinite, all-knowing God somehow forgot. The psalmist rather tells us that God looks down from heaven and He sees all the children of man from where He sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. That He knows when I sit down and when I rise up. That He discerns my thoughts from afar that even before a word is on my tongue, behold, He knows it all together. So how is it that God remembers? Well, it's the kind of language that God uses so as to come down to us and to accommodate to us something of Himself. That in His sovereign timing, He is working out His promises to and for His people. And after 400 years God in His divine timing comes to reveal to His people, I remember, I have not forgotten. Now you might be asking, Pastor Danny, where do you get that? It's because in chapter 1, verse 5, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. You see, names have meaning. Names have significance in Scripture. Zechariah's name means the Lord has remembered again. 
It is no accident that the story of God's redemption in between 400 years of silence starts back up again with this man. 400 years of silence. People asking, has God forgotten? Has God forgotten? And here comes Zechariah. The Lord has remembered again. It was providential. It was by God's design. And we find that Zechariah was a priest of the division of Abijah. Look at with me in verse 5. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Well, in this time of darkness and silence, Luke, he introduces us to a husband who was a priest and his wife who was also from the priestly line of Aaron. And what we're told from the very beginning is that they were both righteous before God. Luke's research has yielded him personal information about this couple. Not that they were perfect in their obedience before God, but like Job and Noah and other faithful saints in the Old Testament, they, that they exemplified godliness. And we find in this couple two people who manifested extraordinary faithfulness to the Lord their God. They kept the law. They loved the law. They were devoted to the things of God. They lived their lives so as to please God. And I have no doubt that spiritually their, their marriage was what God intended their marriage to be as a means of worshiping and honoring God. They loved one another. They served one another. I want to make a quick word of application here. That for Zechariah and Elizabeth, their relationship was what it was by virtue of their relationship with God. One of the promises that we as married folks forget is that our vertical relationship to God is what shapes and forms and dictates those relationships that exist on the horizontal. And we should never expect our marriages to thrive and grow apart from the Spirit of God. I have observed this in married couples as I've experienced it in my own that whenever I feel myself growing distant from my wife, it is because I am growing distant from Christ. And the formula is not hard. It's not difficult to see. You know, husbands, how would you respond if, if I were to ask you how your marriage is going? Is it not where it should be? Is it not where it needs to be? Or have you never truly spiritually assessed your marriage? We find in this ancient couple that they walked blamelessly before God. How is your walk with God? Is Christ someone that you greet on a Sunday only to go back to being a stranger for the rest of the week? And you know, there's also something to be said here for any of you who are single and looking to be married. We're told that Zechariah and Elizabeth, they both came from the priestly line of Aaron. Now, I'm not saying that you need to go look for a spouse from your family 
God forbid, but it speaks about compatibility. Not about what video games the both of you like to play, like Golden Rings, Elder Scrolls. I have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about here. I only use my computer for Microsoft Word. The only game that I used to play on my phone was Zoom Zoom, you know. But it's about spiritual compatibility. Ask yourself, does this person love Jesus and is faithful to the people of God? And does this person think about the Bible rightly, the way I want to think about the Bible rightly? And maybe even before you ask that question about someone else, you ought to answer that question for your own self. But notice that the both of them were distinguished by their godliness. But there was one cloud that cast a dark shadow on their marriage. Look with me in chapter 1, verse 7. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. We know Luke is writing historical fact here. But we can well imagine the lifetime of heartache behind those words here in verse 7. This was the great disappointment in Elizabeth's life. She had always longed to hold a child in her arms, her own child, but now that was impossible. She was old. And the time for bearing children was long gone. And what added to the difficulty were were the prying questions from others, the insensitive remarks, the sharp pains, and hearing about others, the nagging doubts about the goodness of God. But more than all of that, there was something that was worse. The notion, the notion that somehow this was all her fault. Because you see, in ancient Hebrew culture, barrenness, barrenness was considered a disgrace. Even even a punishment. Genesis chapter 16 tells us that when Hagar conceived that she looked with contempt upon Sarah, who was barren. Leah referred to her former barrenness as an affliction in Genesis 29. Hannah, who was infertile, she wept bitterly in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Elizabeth confesses later in the chapter that it was a reproach. It was hard enough not having a child, but she had to think about this, endure the whispers behind her back, the stigma from people who thought there had to be some dark sin that lurked within this childless couple. But you see, this wasn't just bad manners here, but this was bad theology. Elizabeth wasn't ungodly, but as Luke tells us, she was righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. You see, whatever heartache she suffered, it was not because of some kind of punishment for her sin. You know, our sins are not always the cause of our suffering. Sometimes they are, but sometimes they're not. Yes, it's true that our sins have consequences, but sometimes Christians suffer for exactly the opposite. You see, sometimes Christians suffer for the sake of righteousness. 
And God wants to be glorified through our suffering. But here's the thing. Most of the time, we don't know what his reasons are. And here in this case, Elizabeth was barren for the glory of God. God wasn't punishing her, but rather God was planning a miracle that would get His people ready for the salvation that was to come. Part of the Christian perspective on suffering is that even in the suffering, there is a way, there is a way for us to glorify God and not to become bitter, not to become spiteful, not to withdraw from God, but rather to draw near to God. What I find in Elizabeth is that she didn't ask, what have I done to deserve this? And you see, that's what most people will ask. But here was her response to the suffering that God had placed in her life. How can I glorify God through this? And you might be thinking, well, where do you get that? Where do you get that, Pastor Danny? Let me show you the proof of that. Because notice that instead of waiting for a, for a child to come into her life so that she could begin her life, notice she was busy serving the Lord. She was busy serving the Lord with her husband. Walking blamelessly in His commandments. For her, what some people considered a tragedy, she considered an opportunity. That no matter what suffering we must endure, there is a way for us to live for the glory of God. You see, God had remembered and He had something special in mind here. And to bring about this special child named John, the way in which God was going to be glorified was through a barren womb, but more so through this faithful and godly, ordinary, regular couple. And so there was first a divine silence, followed by a divine remembrance. And notice now a divine encounter in chapter 1, verse 8. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Well, Israel had 18,000 priests divided into 24 divisions. And each division then consisted of over 700 priests in which they served at the temple on a rotating basis for two weeks out of the year. And Luke tells us that Zechariah's division was on duty. Now each day, two out of the 700 or over 700 priests were given the privilege of offering the incense on the altar in the holy place. Only two out of over 700 priests. So they chose two, one in the morning and one in the evening. Which means that the vast majority of priests never in their lifetime had the opportunity to offer this sacred task in the inner chambers of the temple. Well, how did a priest get that rare opportunity? 
He wasn't selected by his fellow priests. There wasn't a contest to determine who was the holier priest. The only one who chose the two priests for this sacred service was God Himself. And He did it through casting lots. And so each day, two, two were chosen in this divine lottery. Sort of like the lottery we held this week to see which two would enter the retreat without payment. And I know that many of you were disappointed while the two rejoiced. It was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And I'm talking about Luke here. Luke tells us that Zechariah, as it were, won the priestly lottery to enter into the temple and burn incense. And he must have rejoiced as it was the very highlight, the very high point of his pastoral career, overwhelmed at such a blessing. Now perhaps we can picture this scene. That with great anticipation and awe, Zechariah in preparation, he put on his priestly robes. And he, then he walked through the temple courts. And he would have passed through the crowds that had gathered to pray. Notice chapter 1, verse 10. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And Zechariah would have entered into the holy place to see the sacred furniture in which the Israelites had made according to the instructions that God gave to Moses. On his left was the golden lampstand flickering in the darkness. On his right was the table of bread. But before him was the golden altar of incense up against the curtain that guarded the entrance to the most holy place or known as the Holy of Holies. Now, Zechariah was accompanied by two assistants. One carrying a golden bowl filled with burning coals and the other carrying a golden censer filled with incense. And the first helper would have laid out the coals upon the altar, which he then exited the holy place. And then the second helper would have arranged the incense before the altar, upon which he too then exited the holy place. And now Zechariah was now alone before God. A moment of silence then ensued, for the most solemn action was about to take place. Zechariah was to pour the incense upon the burning coals, causing a, a cloud to ascend, causing a cloud to arise. Its fragrance rising and spreading. But in that moment, in that moment, together with the climbing aroma, he had to lift up a prayer on behalf of the people of Israel. A prayer of thanksgiving and supplication. And the crowds that had gathered outside, right outside the sanctuary, they were prostrate with outstretched hands, praying. And as they saw the smoke come, come out of the sanctuary, they knew that their prayers had been offered. And that the priest whom God had chosen, he had completed his sacred task. Now, all that was to take place. And after all that took place, Zechariah was to return back to the crowd outside the sanctuary. And when he did, he was expected to pronounce the priestly blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. 
The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. And the benediction was then followed by songs of praise and other offerings. But the people on this occasion, they waited and they waited and they waited. They saw Zechariah go in and they saw the smoke come out from the tent, from out of the sanctuary, but he wasn't coming out. Hello? Zach? You can kind of imagine. Zachy! You there, man? You good in there, bro? You know, I don't know. I don't, they didn't say that. But I'm sure minutes ended up seeming like hours. And the first thing on the people's minds would have been, the Lord has struck him dead. Well, what was going on? There before the altar of incense, Zechariah had a divine encounter. And that God had sent to him an angel. Look with me in verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Now notice this about Luke. Notice how detailed Luke gives to us this account. Not just that an angel of the Lord appeared, but at the right side of the altar, meaning to Zechariah's left. Here was Zechariah burning the incense and praying finding out that he wasn't the only one in that room. And the sight of this angel must have, it must have terrified him. I mean, who wouldn't be? Luke tells us in verse 12 that Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. Now you have to understand that seeing angels wasn't some normal, common thing. There hadn't been an angelic encounter for at least 400 years. And now all of a sudden we find not just one angelic encounter breaking through from above, but we find in the Gospel accounts in the beginning, multiple encounters. We know that the same angel appeared shortly thereafter to Mary, the mother of Jesus. And then the heavenly host attended and announced the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ right outside Bethlehem. We see angels and lots of them. In the first couple chapters of Luke, the angels, they seem just as frequent in the narrative as Zechariah and Elizabeth and Joseph and Mary. They seem very much a part of the story. For centuries, no angelic intervention, but all of a sudden, the heavens, it's like they're breaking open. What is happening? That heaven, as it were, was breaking through the clouds to come down to earth. That the King of angels was coming. The Lord of hosts was on His way. That the one for whom myriads upon myriads of angels bow down to worship was arriving. Now here in the sanctuary, the angel responded back to Zechariah in verse 13. He said, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. Now what prayer was the angel 
referring to. We know that this couple had prayed many times during the course of their marriage. But I reckon that as they started to get older and older, their prayers may have weakened. A little less fervency. A little less urgency. A little less frequency. They had prayed, but God had not answered. And now, it was too late. They, they were old. They were advanced in years. They were past the age of having kids. But maybe Zechariah had decided to pray for one last time. Here was a unique opportunity, a once-in-a-lifetime kind of prayer at the altar of incense. Or maybe it was Elizabeth out in the courtyard as her husband entered into the sanctuary offering up one last prayer. Again, this is all conjecture. Maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. But we know this couple prayed. However weakened and perfect their prayer would have been. Well, why do I say that? It's because later on in the narrative, Zechariah, and we'll see this next Lord's Day, he doesn't believe. He doesn't believe the words of the angel. So it doesn't really seem like a, a, a man who was praying all day, every day. And he becomes mute because of his unbelief. And you see, yet God, God answered his weak and imperfect prayer. And what we discover about God here is that he even answers prayers that had long ceased to be prayed. And while we may forget, what do, what do we come to find at the beginning of this narrative? The Lord doesn't forget. He remembers. Zechariah. You know, Dale Ralph Davis, he's one of my favorite Old Testament commentators who surprisingly has written a commentary on Luke. And he says that the prayer, however long ago it was prayed, was on record in heaven where the Lord treasures the verbs and nouns and adverbs of His people. I love the way he says that. That the Lord treasures the verbs and nouns and adverbs of His people. We find in Psalm 102 that the Lord regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their plea. Why does God do this? Why does God do this? Why does God even give an ear to my weak and pathetic prayers? And we have weak and pathetic prayers, do we not? Prayers in which I wander off, doze off, you ever pray and then you go, because you were sleeping, you fell asleep? Prayers in which I give with little and weak faith. When the angel encountered Zechariah, he told him, your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Well, we learn from Zechariah that names have meaning, that names have significance, that God is a God who has remembered. And we find here that God has remembered the long-ceased prayer of Zechariah. Now again, why? God gives the answer in His Son, John. Yohanan, whose name means God has been gracious. 
Why did God answer his prayer? It's because God is gracious. How did life come from within that barren womb? It's because God is gracious. By the grace of God and only by the grace of God. Now God answered prayer more than just to gladden a couple. We have to see the big story here. But God answered prayer to transform a people. Not just to gladden a couple, but to transform a people. You see, by giving John the Baptist, God wanted the people of Israel to hear the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Divine plans laid in eternal ages past now began to activate. Angels breaking through from heaven. Announcements being made. God's divine silence was broken because of God's divine remembrance. And this divine encounter that we see here was to bring about the divine person of Jesus Christ. To close the Old Testament, God spoke through Malachi and said the Son of Righteousness, S-U-N, the Son of Righteousness, shall rise with healing in its wings. The sunrise was coming to give light to the long dark night. Listen to the Gospel of John. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. God made good on his promise. He has answered prayer, not just to bring life within a barren womb, but to give life, eternal life to sinners such as ourselves. And by His grace, and only by His grace. You see, you can't be good enough. You can't get moral enough. You can't earn it. You can't merit it. And it's because as fallen human beings, we don't deserve it. What we deserve are our wages. And the wages of sin, the wages of sin, beloved, is death. When John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, he said this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Gospel is that God came down to sinful humanity to take away sin by dying on the cross. Not just as a sacrifice, but as a substitutionary sacrifice. You see, in the Old Testament, the lamb wasn't slaughtered and killed with no one else in view, but to make atonement on behalf of sinners, looking forward to that great and final atonement upon which Jesus made on the cross. You see, Christ died in the place of sinners. And He died and He rose again from the dead to give new and everlasting life. If you are living your life apart from Christ, if you are without the saving knowledge of Christ, come to Him in trusting faith. Ask and you will receive. He will answer your prayer to save. You know, Christian believer, what I, what I find in this narrative, in this aging couple, what I find in this narrative in this aging couple, along with their imperfections and their weaknesses, is a love for God that didn't depreciate over time. 
that as they advanced in years, God became sweeter. God became more precious in their sight. And that's not common. We find this couple as old as they were, and they kept, they kept serving the Lord. And they kept walking with the Lord. Usually we think of people in church, you're serving, you're young, you got the time, you're serving the church, you get married, okay, maybe we're going to scale back a little bit. You have kids, maybe we're going to scale back even more. And then you scale, scale, and you follow that pattern. We see it all the time. But here they were, advanced in years, serving the Lord, walking blamelessly until their final breath, trusting in His promise, looking forward to God's promise to save and the coming Savior. And can you imagine, can you imagine for this aging couple who so loved God when they finally laid their eyes, not on their own son, but on God's son. Can you imagine when that time came? That before them was a child that didn't just point to the graciousness of God. That was their own son, John. But when they laid eyes on Jesus, who was himself the very grace of God, grace upon grace, and full of grace and truth, what an expressible joy. You see, church, they model for us the kind of love for God as one ages and gets older that we ought to have. And when they saw Jesus Christ, they must have sung, they must have sung, Oh God, if ever we loved Thee, my Jesus, tis now. As He looked upon the child, would our love then for Christ follow in the same church? Let's pray together. Gracious God and Father, we are reminded of Your grace that in our weakness and in our trials and even in our unbelief, You give us grace. And we ask for more of Your grace. We confess that we often go about our lives thinking more about ourselves than Christ. And we ask that you would forgive us for our cold-heartedness, our lack of love. Forgive us for our apathetic worship. For, forgive us for our neglectful attitude. Wash and cleanse us anew and make us whole. Give to us what we cannot produce in and of ourselves, a greater love for Christ in whose precious and holy name we pray. Amen.